Hello, and welcome to our special Veterans Day Cambridge Stronger podcast episode. I'm your host, Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. At Cambridge, we are truly grateful for all of the individuals who have and currently do serve this country. It has often been said that freedom isn't free, and we certainly do not take our veterans for granted here at Cambridge. To show our appreciation, we teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee and Advisory Council to spotlight a veteran Cambridge financial professional. Joining us today is Heather Bischoff, Chief Financial Officer of the Bischoff Financial Group. She is a founding member of Bischoff Financial alongside with her husband, Eric. Thank you for joining me, Heather. Glad to be here. So great to have you. So great to have you. Before we jump into any questions, I first want to say thank you for your service. You are a veteran of the U.S. Army. That is really admirable. And on behalf of all of us at Cambridge, thank you. I think our listeners are going to get some exciting backstories on how you got where you are today. And I always like to kick off my podcast with that. Everybody's always interested at the beginning and, you know, a more creative introduction than your bio, right? Tell us about your journey and how did you get where you are today? That's a really, it's such a, a deep question and you can really... Oh, there's so much to say because it's been such a journey, you know, Um, but the very, the quick story or quick version of it is I did go to school to become a doctor. I wanted to be a child psychiatrist. I was kind of a super smart kid and loved numbers and science. And um, I, I grew up in a really tough family with, uh, you know, chemical abuse and addictions. And somehow I just had wonderful role models and grandparents and school teachers And so I always had a guiding light to kind of get me through tough stuff. But with that, I wanted to go back and help kids like me to kind of get through that themselves. So in college, and I made it all the way to a private school, I triple majored in biology and psychology and chemistry. Loved it. It was so much fun. I was a junior by the fall of my freshman year um, with credits. And the finance department came to me and said, Heather, Every check that has ever been written to this institution has bounced. And I was barely 19 years old, had no idea about money, knew nothing. All I knew was, oh my God, that's so scary and overwhelming and I have no idea what to do. So I decided, and it turned out that all that money had been spent back to that kind of previous thing that I'd grown up with. And um, I decided, you know what, I am a young adult and I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but I'm going to sign on the dotted line, take full responsibility for this and get home, go home and get a job. So I got a job at the local bank that I'd always banked with. And when you know it, I learned how to take care of my own money. I read every self-help book known to man and figured it out, paid the college back. I also joined the military and, you know, fast forward 29 years and my partner and I are managing almost a half billion in assets and teaching families to this day about money and empowering them so that they know it's a good tool and it can help you to get you where you're going. It doesn't have to be this big, scary, overwhelming thing. So no regrets that you didn't follow your initial, you've never No, no, because you know, you pick up a book and you can read about any kind of science you want. And I'm at the place in what I do where I get to do math every single day. (laughs) 
So I love it. I, I, they throw me the complex math problems and I, I have fun almost every single day with what I do. And don't you think your interest in psychology at a high level probably assists you in your day-to-day -day job today as well? I, I do actually. I have a, and maybe it's how I grew up or just my life experiences, but I have a high perception of what other people are feeling and what they're concerned with. And so it really lends itself well to understanding the math problem, but also connecting with folks at their level and their comfort with their finances and, and disarming that well before you get into any talk about numbers. I, I really feel like even in my own environment where I'm hiring people that support you, but then also with financial advisors, that intuitiveness, that emotional intelligence that you're describing, that's the winner in so many cases about why a client does business with a financial professional. It's trust and appreciating you as a person. You know, thank goodness that my kids have nothing to do with it because you know, I come down the stairs and they say, uh-uh, you go back upstairs and change right now. So <laughs> if they were to be my commercial, it'd be a completely different scenario. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. So we're talking about clients, interacting with clients. I know it's one of your favorite parts of the business. Talk about uh, your business. Give us an idea of what it really looks like and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, how the interactions work with your client. Give us a deeper dive in that area. We've always been very people-focused, service-focused, where we separate ourselves from our competitors through how we serve our clients. You know, what's that extra thing? How do we provide value to our, our families over our competitor down the street or across the country? So when my partner and I kind of started maturing in this business, we had our own aspirations as well. And that was to retire in a warm place. And our kids, our oldest is at that point where she now has two grandchildren or two babies. I have two grandchildren. We had to do that in a way that our kids would come with us. So I, I answer that in a weird way because what has become our business is providing that really high net worth, high touch service where people know that we know who they are, but we've removed almost every traditional border from that stereotypical financial office that, that you see on the corner. We serve clients in 36 states. We have employees in four states. Um, I'm getting ready to extend offers to four more. I can't even remember all the states that they live in. And um, a large proportionate or a large share of what we do now is remote. It's web conference, it's phone, it's email. And to the extent that our clients want it, it's face-to-face. -face. So we travel around the country too and meet with folks during you know, complex times in their lives or just because we haven't seen them in a while. So we've really, um, to, to boil that down, we're still that high-touch uh, service firm but we do it nationally. So the, the staff, the partners that you have surrounding you as it relates to client service, what kind of roles do they take on? How did you decide to build out the organization such that you could cover all the bases when you're doing business like that so many places? So, you know, Eric and I like to say we've made more mistakes <laughs> than we have probably good choices. 
but you know, you can you can call it a win or you can call it a life lesson. And we just we choose to not lose. We're just we've learned a lot of life lessons through all that we've done. And in doing that, what we've learned is we really need to keep people pulling in the same direction. And the way you do that, there's a couple ways that we've done it, I should say. Number one, nobody's on a 1099. So they, they don't have to go through each other's desk drawers looking for leads or you know killing what they eat. We all share what we call a firm client and we all have our respective expertise. So we have financial planners and Eric kind of manages that group. We have para planners and they support our planners on you know, the financial planning side. And then we have a service team and the service team actually breaks down to a tax team and this year an estate planning team as well. So we just keep growing. We keep allowing or providing folks with opportunities based on their interest and our clients' needs to deeper dive and become even better experts in whatever role that they're in. And you've acquired some businesses. Some of, the, not, some of this hasn't been organic, right? You've made some significant acquisitions. Do you end up more often than not keeping the staff that was supporting those clients or do you merge it into, or it, does it depend? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we acquire, at, we have acquired at about a pace of one practice a year. Um, it really takes an intensive 90 to 100 days for most practices to be transitioned into our service model. And with that being said, we it's hard to completely draw the lines on how a transition should be done because each person that, that does what we do, everyone does it so differently. So you kind of have to erase all the lines and figure out how to make these two practices mesh. And with that being said, you've got sometimes support people and we always are looking to acquire good people that, that kind of fit. Quite frankly, Everybody that, that we meet, we try to take their support staff. At this point, we've never gained a support staff. They're also retiring or the advisor staying put and they need their staff. They just want to peel off a group of clients or what have you. So we keep looking for opportunities to do that. But so far, we have yielded nothing. That's interesting. I would think I it would be more frequent. But I guess what you're saying makes sense. It just depends on the type of acquisition you're doing. It is. And you really have to stay flexible to who's willing to sell their practice today. How about the clients? So you talked a lot earlier about how you manage virtual and face-to-face -face options, you know, as it relates to those investors. But I would think that clients that you've acquired maybe demand a little bit more face-to-face -face or not. That's a really good question. The number one objection we get from advisors who are selling their practices, most I'd say are not in the bait or the, uh, Gen Xer generation, like my partner and I, they're an older generation. So with that being said, their, their borders or their traditional, you know, I'm the advisor on the corner perception, it's just different than ours. So each time we've acquired, we've been able to overcome that. And what's really attractive and important to us in acquiring a practice is not so much that they have a certain account minimum or Oh, there's so many things you could put in there, but can we as a team, if we acquire this um, financial planners or advisors practice, can we provide even more value to that client? So if it's a one man shop and we've got 15 folks, 
chances are they're going to get more consistent annual reviews. They're going to get a phone call back in 24 hours. Trading efficiencies. Um, we're a larger firm, so they're going to get discounts as it relates to trading and maybe a little bit lower fee. We do tax prep, which a lot of financial planners don't do just yet. We do estate planning. So if we can provide value, then it's a good acquisition opportunity for us. We never want to take away or detract from a client situation. We want to provide continuity and then enhance it. That makes sense. Sounds great for the clients. And do you, how do you reach out to them? What's the communication look like? So we have a pretty robust transition plan. And back to your previous question, do you meet with all these people if you acquire them? We are meeting with retiring advisors everywhere. We've flown to Oregon, we're flying to DC, we've flown to Hawaii, you name it, we have flown to meet uh, an advisor, his team or her team and figure out do we have a basis here to provide even more value than this client's already seen? So part of the transition plan is a, a very concentrated meeting process with that advisor and with the, the client. We do believe that kind of a physical connection, it has to be established. It's just part of what we do. But once you do that, and people feel the ease and the amenity of being able to jump on a web conference and not have to jump in the car and drive through the snow or whatever else. People really appreciate that because they still have to get in the car and go to the dentist or wherever else. Um, and, you know, just coming out of this pandemic, it's even easier because a lot of folks that you would traditionally stereotype and say, they're not, they're not using the web. What are you doing? Yes, they are. That's how they kept in touch with their grandchildren during the pandemic. So it's just a really great time. The, the, the disruptors of the technological industry have served financial planners so well in how and all the tools and the abilities that we have to serve our clients. And it's really up to us to embrace those disruptors and take it to the next level with serving these clients that really need us. Sounds really exciting. And I think the clients are well taken care of, it sounds like. So that's that's the we all try. Uh, that's the visionary part of this. So you and Eric had a different model, perhaps, right? At one point in time in the earlier stages of your career. Um, was there a moment, or there was clearly a moment, but what was the moment that you knew it was time for you to go out on your own and open your own business? Talk about talk oh, to me about that. Wow. Yeah. So I think that was different for both Eric and I. For Eric, I think he came to it a lot more quickly than I did because I was kind of happy serving the bank client. But, you know, over time, the bank client, although, you know, they love me, I love them. There is a piece of being a producing banker that you kind of have to roll with the punches of, of the strategy of, I'll, I dare say, the week. It was just so much change so fast and, and a, a little too salesy for me. So I think for me, when I realized, wow, I, I have to sell, like last week I was selling mortgages because the rates went down and this week I'm selling a check card. I mean, come on, I can do better. Where's my, we're tapping into my highest level expertise and really leveraging that with, with this relationship. So um, I would say that was probably late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and Eric was, you know, just about, he left the bank. We've been doing this for a very long time, but it was definitely about, you know, that 
our own personal values and just being able to put food on the table for ourselves in fair trade, I'd say. Yeah. And that's sometimes one of the things that keeps people from taking that leap, right? They get, especially in your situation where it was both of you. Sometimes there's another, you know, there's another member of the household that can carry the weight while you're trying to start your own business. You know, I've heard a lot of those stories, but uh, it's pretty exciting that the two of you could do this together. Yeah, it was, it was exciting for sure. And, you know, I did the production just like Eric and I should just give you the footnote that my name was always above his in all of the district competitions and numbers, Heather Bischoff, then Eric Bischoff. That's very important. <laughs> I'll claim, I'll cling to my two or three years over his 20 some years. Um, and when I see him, I don't think he has a problem with that. <laughs> no, he doesn't at all. Um, but I was able to take that sales experience and everything that I did and you know, we had four kids. So, you know, turn my back to him and do and build out the operations of the firm while raising our children as my primary role. And he was able to keep his back to me and stay in front of the clients. So it was a great division of labor. We had the same mind about what those clients needed, what those client conversations were like, but I was building out the infrastructure of the firm while he was serving them face-to-face. It it was a true division of labor. And I think, unfortunately, it's something that, you know, advisors just like us, maybe with the same numbers, they're 10 to 15 years older because they didn't have that partnership from the beginning. So we really, we've been lucky that we've had each other all these years to do this with. You just hit on a really important point that I try to stress when I get the opportunity here, which is the flexibility to also raise a family that this business can bring, depending on how it's structured. So, you know, if you had some advice to give somebody out there who's thinking about the fact that financial services sounds very dry, sounds very time consuming, sounds very demanding, how do you juggle a family and that at the same time? Any advice for those people? I think the word you used was balance. And, you know, that was a really cool word, but I think the, the best word is, is maybe more integration because my kids are kids of small business owners. And, you know, part of running a business is the kids being a part of that. Like when we owned a building that we were located in, the kids came in when they got the driver's license, they cleaned the toilets for that building. Or when we had client appreciation events, the kids would do face painting of our clients' kids. And, you know, as much as it, you want to just call it a business, these clients are, and, and quite frankly, our team, they're our extended family. They, they were the ones there and cheering us on every time we had a child. And, uh, you know, all through the years, they've seen our children grow up fight and, and just like uh, that for them. We've been there when they had their first child or when they lost a spouse or, you know, all these big life events. So it's really not a balance. This is a way of life. And, you know, Eric and I have accepted this and then some our entire careers. And, you know, our children, you know, they have their own lives. And we've done our very best to to one of us be freed up at all times to be there for them. But also it's part of their life and their responsibility to to be a a member of this extended family at times. So, you know, it gives them a unique perspective. And I will share that 
all of our kids have worked in the business at one point. Our oldest is our tax preparer. And she's been with Fishaw Financial in a, in a grown-up way for the better part of seven years now. And I have never met a young person that has been, that has had such good intuition on the fundamentals of financial planning, but also those, those really out there concepts like the, the VA contracts and the income writers and the death benefit writers and you know the alternative investments and making sure there's a re-registration versus a, just a change of rep. All that weird stuff that it takes people a long time to figure out it's very intuitive for her. So, you know, growing up in the business has had some benefits it, that never occurred to us with that next generation joining us. So you said that all of them have, there's five, right? Four, Four of them. Yep, Four got it. and two grandchildren. Have any of them, besides the one that's involved now, expressed an interest in coming into the family business? Do you think that's going to grow or... Yeah, Amy, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, no, not a, they won't be a part of this. Just like you said, it's, it's this math thing, gross. <laughs> but, um, you know, never say never. My son uh, goes to law school at the, at the last quarter of this year. And now we're, we're adding a line of estate planning in our financial services. So I, he definitely needs to get out and go work for another firm first and really kick the tires of, of what he's doing and feel good about it. But, you know, maybe that will come to fruition. Who knows? So I just, you, you can vision board all you want and get where you're going. But when you look back, it is so amazing how much different and better life tends to turn out than what you could have ever imagined for yourself. And, and same with these kids. So I'd love for them to all join us. But at the same time, I'm trying to put no pressure on any of them to join us. The firmest grasp is with an open hand. So perhaps they will return uh, when you least expect it, even if you don't think they're coming. Wow, I love that, Amy. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I've, uh, I had a mentor of mine long ago that used to say that a lot. So it stuck with me. Let's talk about your clients a little bit more. What do the clients look like? What is a good fit um, in some of those practices that you've acquired? Have you had a situation where maybe some clients you thought would be a good fit weren't? Have you had to let clients go because they aren't a good fit? What, is, what do they look like? Great question. You know, you, you hate to accept defeat. You just hate it. It just, you get a kick in the gut when a client leaves, you just, you know, but if you can kind of arrive at mutually that, wow, we have this fleet of people and financial services, and we just are not making you happy. It's, it's okay to say, you know what? You might want to find somebody else to work with. We, we're just not going to make you happy. So uh, we've gotten pretty good at saying that when we need to, we don't, we don't like to do it, but it happens with acquisitions. Um, you know, that, that, uh, exiting advisor or transitioning advisor has a lot of power. And so when you're vetting and, and agreeing on a transition plan, it's really important for uh, that conversation and that gentleman's agreement to, to be solidified. Because um, you can have instances where an advisor has been doing business, you know, commission-based stock since the 80s. 
And we come in and say, oh no, tax efficient portfolios that are turned four times a year and no more commissions. We're just gonna charge this fee and the more you save, the lower the fee is. And, and that, that's philosophically, ideologically different. So it's a tough one for an exiting advisor to subscribe to, let alone sign off on and say, here's my beloved client, please put them in your model. So it's a, it, you know, it's just part of that process that you've got to figure out, do, can we help the bulk of people? Can we save them money? Can we add value in different ways um, to the best of our ability? That's all we can do. And, you know, it is a risk, it, but it's a calculated risk. We've been doing this a long time. We got enough gray hairs now to know what our clients are looking for and, and speak their language, meet them where they are. And then over time, teach them how to treat us and, and, and how we work. Yes, uh, I think that's very important, right? You want to have some sort of synergy in terms of core values and uh, communication style with your clients to make it fulfilling because you are serving them and working with them all day, every day and in so many ways. You sure are. And you just see the best and you see the worst and you've got to be able to be okay with both sides of the range. What about generational planning? Do you work with multiple generations? Yes, that is like the best answer ever. Oh my gosh. So Eric and I were just talking the other day and we are so not old enough for this to have happened. By the way, that's a full disclaimer. Four generations working with us. Uh, isn't that fantastic? That's amazing. <laughs> Grandma, grandpa, then their, their adult children then their young adult children and their grandchildren have, we've now opened accounts for the grandchildren. So that is absolutely just the most prideful thing when you have such a great relationship and that high trust and confidence in families that not only they work with you, but their children with no question, they work with you and their children, they're great. That is the coolest thing. So um, yes, we do a fair amount of um, generational planning. We offer meetings where we have those tough conversations. We'll ask our clients, talk to your kids about money. Do you talk to them about your money? Oh no, it's none of their business. Okay. Well, at some point it will be. So let's, let's talk about how we're going to broach the subject and, you know, everybody's a little different, but it's, it's fun. It, it changes the paradigm a little bit, helps everybody to relax a little bit uh, and maybe transition what we really want to transfer to that next generation, which is not our money, but our values. How did we accumulate that money? What did it mean to us to save that money? And how did, how did we get that? That's what, that's what it's really about, our values and transferring those. I love that. That's a great way of putting it. If more people thought about it that way, maybe it would make more sense. I think in some ways, some financial advisors just assume that it will stay, uh, but they haven't built that relationship yet. And to do it ahead of time before mom and dad are gone so that everybody's on the same page. I, I imagine sometimes you have to sound like the bad guy, right? There's some parents who are like, I don't want to talk about this. Or if I do talk about this, I want that child to know that if they get in trouble, they're getting nothing. Yeah. So one of the things that we do, Amy, is uh, we call it a discovery meeting. Before we even get into the, I like to call it, we're, we're a bunch of math nerds, so we're doing a bunch of nerdy math. Uh, we have a values discussion. 
with our families. We do this when they first come to us. And we talk about, you know, the husband and wife or the partners, how they talked about money in their household. Oh, mom and dad never talked about it. Oh, we talked about it every week. And I had an allowance and I put 50% savings and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we talk about the mistakes they've made and, and fear, things based in fear with regard to their money. We talk about, you know, if, if money weren't an object, what would you be doing today? And what do you want for your children? So we have this kind of document that talks about their values before we even get into the money discussion. And that really, even as much as a financial plan is a governing document for the relationship, and here's what we're going to implement today, here's what we're going to implement three years and so forth. Those values, that's the governing document. What is What makes them move emotionally and, and what can we help them to protect or right back in their face, hey, now, you said you're withdrawing your Roth money to buy a house, but you said, I don't want a house. I want a big Roth. Let me, I gotta, I gotta call you out on that one. Here's what you said. Let's renegotiate this value or, you know what I mean? So yeah. you do, <laughs> these folks pay us to tell them not what they want to hear, what they need to hear. And, and we remind them of that as much as possible because sometimes we aren't the deliverer of the best message or what they want to hear and makes them feel good, but it's maybe what they need to hear. And it's gotta be really helpful to set that stage up front before that event happens. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No surprises later. I think that's a good <laughs> philosophy of life. So Heather, it's not like we haven't talked about a couple of full-time lifetime full-time jobs already, but you mentioned it earlier. Thank you for your service. You are an Army veteran and you're also a former Democratic member of the Ohio House of Representatives. How you fit all that in and raise four kids, who knows? But we know through all of that that community is very important to you. You have given a lot of service in addition to what you do today, but what were some of the key takeaways from those experiences and how did they merge in with, you know, what you, what you foresaw from a, a career perspective? Sure. So with the military, easy. The, my grandfather was uh, absolutely my role. He just, I, I spent as much time as possible with him as a child and he served in the army <laughs> and I got little stories along the way. And when I was in college and I was faced with that really tough meeting with that big, scary finance guy, um, I realized, you know what? I really got to figure this out for myself. I'm in it by myself and I got to do this. I lost my grandfather. What would my grandpa do? So I got the job at the bank. I made $12,000 a year, which, you know, you can buy fancy cars and homes with that, but, you know, I just needed more. So I realized very quickly it wasn't going to cover it. So I also joined the military so I could get myself through college and, you know, afford a, a lifestyle that I could pay back this school and start saving for myself. So I think with the military, I really got the discipline and those basic life soft skills that I kind of missed out on the first time around. And I really exceeded in a structured environment. I graduated the top of my class. I graduated expert marksman. I earned soldier of the year for the state of Ohio. And then I earned it for the Midwest. So I really got to, in a structured environment, just feel success and achievement in a way that I'd never experienced before. And it also lent to how I raised my kids as poor things. They did a lot of push-ups growing up, but they're going to be okay. <laughs> and then with the House of Representatives, that was a really 
great opportunity that came out of just my absolute love for finance and math and my kids and my community. Our community in Ohio, it was right after 2008. And, and you know, as well as I do, those local budgets and everything just restricted, like nobody's business. On top of that, we were losing jobs at 750000 a month. And, you know, those seniors and the not... Uh, or the young people who didn't yet have kids stopped voting for the levies to, to pay for our schools and our teachers. And it's because they weren't getting raises in social security. You know, it was a scary, their, their savings went down, their values of their homes went down, healthcare continued to rise. So they weren't voting no against the teachers in schools per se, because they hated them, but because of the budgetary problems they were experiencing for themselves, although it manifested itself in a very negative situation. So just like Eric and I do every day, we take the emotion out of the math. I was able to look at what was going on and say, wait a second, this has nothing to do with poor fiscal management at the local level or, you know, our seniors and our young professionals not being in a, you know, being good community members, it's a matter of everybody being on the same page about what is needed. So as a, you know, as a finance person, I was able to step in and just talk math and numbers and nerd it out for everybody to the best of my ability and knocked on 13,000 doors that first summer and told that story to as many people as I could. And I got elected. So congratulations. Yeah. Got elected for three terms. And then my oldest said she was getting married and we, and we said, oh my gosh, we're moving to California now. <laughs> so I resigned and we relocated and now we have a, a national business. Any future political aspirations? You want to run our country someday, my friend? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I get the same um, question and that is my answer as well. So, so no you know, the cool thing is if you are, if you live in this country, you are um, qualified to run and you should, you know, run for a local school board, run for a county role, a state role, a national role. You know, we've all done our own things. I served in the military and helped with the Girl Scouts and raise kids in a business. Um, but we've all done things and you can match that up with a high percentage of your constituents. And um, therefore, you can be a voice to them little bit of work on the connection with them, but you know, you can be a voice in any level of government. So I suggest, you know, you don't have to be passionately political because I don't think I am passionately political. I'm just, I try to be very informed and moderate arguments so that they are number sense. Take the stigma and the emotion out of it. Let's just get down to the numbers and figure out what makes sense and, and what's kind of excessive in this situation. So, and I think everybody should that has any aspiration whatsoever too. Well, thank you for your service again. I, I have always been really impressed with the amount of things that you've done in your short life because it, you've really made an impact and spent a lot of time focusing on community and making a difference in people's lives. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I, honestly, I feel like we all have our own slumdog millionaire story where we've just done amazing things and touched just random all over the place things. So I happen to think right back at you. I feel the same about you, Amy. Thank, Thank you, you for your service to not only Cambridge, but to all the women. I mean, you are such a wonderful voice for us that 
you've been able to raise kids and escalate all the way through a business and run it and then show us a pathway as well. So thank you right back. Oh, you're welcome. I hopefully we're inspiring many others to keep doing it long after you and I are gone. There you go. That's the spirit. So one of the things that inspires people to do that is to realize that we also have personal lives. You shared a lot about how busy you are with your family, but what do you and your partner do today for fun? Okay. So <laughs> Eric and I have been married 25 years this year. And, um, I, I really like whatever he wants to do. I will go do it because that I love to adventure. Um, but this year for our 25th anniversary, he has agreed to do something I want to do like so crazy. We are going to go to Spain to a little tiny Island called Mallorca. And anybody knows who's heard of Mallorca knows there is a really cool Spaniard that plays tennis there. And his name is Rafa Nadal. And we're going to stay at his facility. And I get to play tennis for two weeks. Oh my gosh, that sounds glorious. He's going to take um, uh, pickleball lessons, which is very popular for anybody listening. If you're like, I'm too old for tennis or too out of shape, but I can do better than ping pong. Oh my gosh, paddleball is, or pickleball is totally where you should be. It's so much fun. I play it too, but he's going to get up to speed and take lessons and I'm going to do the tennis. I love tennis. Uh, there's just, I do it probably four or five times a week. And that's, I, I have a lot of energy or maybe that gives me energy, but uh, that's definitely uh, a consumer of a lot of personal time. And Mr. Bischoff's going to join me this year. So I'm very excited. <laughs> that's so exciting. See, there's a benefit to hanging in there for 25 years. You probably right? get to do something on your bucket list. So excited. <laughs> Congratulations. It sounds really, really great. Yeah. We definitely had to wait the 25 years because now all the kids are out of the house. Like, <laughs> you know, you do the you do the beach trips that the kids want to do for two and a half decades. Now it's our turn. So we're both excited. Sounds like you're taking advantage of it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, Heather, is there any other advice you'd like to give our listeners about life, about our business? Um, you know, your perspective on something that maybe I didn't ask that I should have. Don't be afraid. Uh, you know, it can be as small as something you've never seen before as you're seeing a client situation, don't be afraid. Just ask questions, pick up the phone and, and try to be resourceful for yourself. Search the internet, search the IRS website. Um, with actual clients, I, this is gonna be shocking. Some clients have really big balances in their accounts, but they are people just like you and they need help. And they need expertise. So I, I would just say, get away from fear, like seize it, seize it and push through it and get to the other side because that's where you truly grow as a professional and as a person. And it keeps you challenged in life and excited every day about what you're doing. Thanks for that wisdom, the passion, the energy that I'm getting as we do this uh, podcast. It's been really fun. You are a great example of hashtag Cambridge Stronger for sure. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I can't either. <laughs> no clue. Thanks, Amy. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. 
the best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. Stronger.